Um, we are in our last month here, kind of before uh, summer, and some of you are excited about that. Kids will be out soon. Maybe you're less excited about that part, but kids will be out soon. Summer vacation is coming up. Uh, some of you, in the words of Cosmo Kramer up here, I'm already gone. You're already thinking about what's going to be going on a month from now, two months from now, as you head out of town, as you head to Australia, as you head to other places. And it's a, it's a time where we're, we're going to rub shoulders with neighbors that we haven't seen all year. I don't know if it's like you, 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 if you live in a home and you're like, you come out in the spring, you're like, oh, you're my neighbor, and you, don't, you haven't seen them. It's like, oh yeah, we live now, but it's been raining, we haven't seen each other. Or um, uh, we're going to be spending time with uh, maybe extended family that, that we don't spend loads of time with. So it means that as a church, we're going to be, some of us are going to be going to other places and, and, and checking out other places, going to places to relax and have recreation. And my question for us is, what is our faith going to look like over the summer? Because, ooh, some people are like, ooh, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> hey, man, I've, I've been working hard all year. I'm going to go to Mexico. I'm going to relax, and I'm fine if nobody here knows that I normally go to church and I live this kind of Christian life. I'm just going to kind of put that in hold. I've earned it. I've earned it. I'm going to drink a little more. I'm going to relax a little more. I've earned it. What is our faith going to look like over the summer? What is our faith going to look like as we, as a church, rub shoulders with the community at Party in the Park? What's it going to look like when we are a part of CA Church's Church at the Lake? When we, are, uh, when we go to the downtown Poco car show and we rub shoulders and we have conversations with people about who we are and why we exist. Why are we handing out water so that people don't pass out? It's always so hot at the car show. So are we going to have the kind of faith where we press pause and take a break because we've earned it and relax? Or are we going to be, oh dare I say, a church who, who's actually out on the mission field in Mexico, in Australia, wherever we're going to go? over the summer, to the park, to the water park, wherever we might be finding ourselves. There we see ourselves as families and as individuals on the mission field when we are not necessarily in this building. I have confidence that as we uh, kind of go out and, and, and check out the world and relax over the summer that we will post many images of the great experiences we have. Mine will be on Instagram. I will anxiously await your approval for all of them. But it's my hope that as we gather back from the summer, we'll be able to say, you know what, I met this person on the plane, I had this conversation at Starbucks, I was able to really sit down and have this conversation with somebody at a barbecue that we've needed to have for a very long time. I saw, I saw that they, they needed to hear about grace and forgiveness, and I was able to finally have that conversation. It's an audacious desire, I know, but it is my desire. Uh, grab your Bibles, turn to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 11. The Gospel of John, chapter 11. Many of us know the story of Lazarus, who is sick, and his sisters send word to Jesus. He's given the news that his cousin, whom he loved, was on death's doorstep, and his, his sisters go, and they plead with Jesus. And, and one of those kind of weird, cryptic messages, Jesus basically goes, this illness will not lead to death. But it's to glorify the Son of God. To which you can only imagine Martha and Mary just going, Okay, but like, can you give us a pill? There's like, is there something we can do for him while we're waiting for this glory of God? Because he's really sick. And a few days later, on God's schedule, apparently not on Mary and Martha's, Jesus heads to their village. In, the chapter, in chapter 11 of the Gospel of John, verse 17, I'm going to read to you verse 17 to 27. I'm going to invite you to stand. This is out of respect for God's word. 
says this in verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem. This is the village they lived in, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the chosen one of God, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. God of grace, I pray you would speak to us this morning of what it means to call Jesus Lord, what it means to understand him as the resurrection and the life. We pray this in his name. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Uh, Anyone who has attended here for a day, anyone who's attended here for a day has heard us say that it is our vision. You've already heard it twice today. To help seekers and believers become fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ. If you've attended for a few weeks or years, you're probably sick of it. You're sick of hearing it. But why do we say it over and over again? Because vision leaks. We all know that. Unless we are continually reminded of why we exist, vision leaks. So we state it over and over. It is like a creed. It's our vision statement that says something about how we see the world and what is important to us. Why should a church even exist? What is the mission of Christians? How do we as Christians see the world? We could have different vision statements. We could have vision statements that say we exist to provide cookies and smiles. That's why we exist. On a Sunday morning. Some of you might be happy with that. Yeah, we like that. We exist to make you feel good about yourself. Build you up. Give you a nice little punch on the shoulder. To make Sunday mornings a little less boring. That would be, we put that on their website. And any of those would say something about how we view the world and what we think is important and why we exist. So the question I want to pose to you this morning, which I'm hoping will help us frame our summer and the decisions we make and what we do with ourselves is this. What story are you living in? What story are you living in? Or as we say today, what is your worldview? How do you view the world? What, first of all, what is a worldview? It's a common word these days. It's an overall view of the world, not a a physical view of the world, but a a philosophical and and all-encompassing perspective on everything that exists and matters to us. So our fundamental beliefs, our assumptions about the world that we live in, they are a result of our worldview. Now, most of us probably don't take too much time to reflect. We don't sit down and, what is my worldview? And start writing down, well, how do I feel about this? What do I believe about this? Many of us don't do that, but when it comes to making decisions on a day-to-day basis, we can find ourselves leaning towards certain areas, and as we analyze those, we can get an idea of what we believe to be true about the world and how that affects the way we live. 
If we believe that we, are, we simply came from apes and we're going to die like dogs, that will affect the way we live, right? It, it will frame what is important to us and what's not important to us, when we're ready to give up and when we're not. If we believe that we're, we were created with purpose and hope and a future by a loving creator, it will frame the way we think and live and make decisions. And we may say, well, I, I don't believe that. I don't believe that we were created by a loving creator. That's fine. I'm just, wait, now all I'm saying is that what we believe about the world will frame the way we live in it. That's all I'm saying. For instance, our, our worldview may not affect whether or not we, we suffer. Suffer is going to be a part of our existence no matter what. However, our worldview through which we interpret our suffering will have a major impact, impact on how we suffer. For sure. It will be the difference between jumping off a building in Manhattan in 2008 because we lost all our money and being able, even in the midst of that, to continue in hope and meaning and purpose. The worldview is very important. What is a Christian worldview? We see a, very, a, a great idea of a Christian worldview in this text. Put yourself in this story. Mary and Martha and Lazarus and the village in Bethany. Jesus walks in to this scene. Some would say four days late. Some would say just on time. Uh, just in time to prove a point and do a miracle. Martha runs up to him. We read in verse 20 and she said, Mary stays seated. She might be ticked. So she's just going to stay at the house for a little bit. I will deal with you when you make it all the way. I don't know what's going on with Mary, right? We have this beautiful framing of a worldview that you and I claim to have if we call ourselves Christians. There's a Christian worldview played out here. She says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you, whatever you ask, God will answer. You, you, you can do this. She says something about who Jesus is and the power he has. Oh, I, I know, I know, I know. You and God the Father, you have this divine relationship. There, there's more to you than meets the eye, Jesus. I, I get that. You have power over death. So you could have stopped this. Your brother will live again. No, I, I, I know that. I know the whole story. I know. At the end, there's going to be a resurrection, and you're, you can bring people. I know that you, you can do that. He says, no, 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 no. I am the resurrection and the life. Now. I am that now. It's not just some promise for way in the future. Uh, Let that frame your existence, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life, and I am standing before you. So you have a great worldview, Martha. You have a great worldview. You understand that I am Lord. You understand uh, where history's going, that there is hope. But you need to know that I need to frame your worldview right now. That is the question that Jesus gives you and I. I, I'm not just a guarantee for your future. I am the resurrection and the life right now. And then he says, do you believe this? Because if you believe this, it will affect how you think about the world, how you live, how you think about yourself. Hear that. Do you believe that the truest, fullest life, identity, purpose, humanity, comes through Jesus. See, in verse 24, she says, I I know that someday that will happen. She says, no, 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 no. Do you believe me for now? The truth of the gospel is not for later. The truth of the gospel is for now. We tend to think that when Scripture asks us to believe, it's just asking us to give a, a cognitive approval to a truth statement. I believe this. So that if we ever have to write a test on theology, we know... You know, virgin birth, strongly agree, right? We, uh, we know how to answer 
all the questions. That when, when Jesus calls us to believe, when Scripture calls us to believe, we don't have the words in English to explain. Belief is not just to cognitively agree. It says, I am laying my life on this. Right? And you've, you've heard it before, the, the idea of saying that a, a chair will hold me. That is different than saying I'm going to sit in that chair. Right? There's a, a famous story, I think it's called the Magnificent Blodine, and he, would, he was doing a, a, a high-wire act across the Niagara Falls. And he, he did it a few times. He kept holding chairs and going around. I think he did it on a, like a unicycle. And, and he came to the crowd on one side of the falls, and he said, Who thinks that I can carry a human across the falls? Yay! Who wants to be that human? Dead silence. That's the difference. Many of us are happy to cheer Jesus on the sideline. Yeah, we believe you can do it. On the last day, you're going to do it. Who wants to invest their life in me and believe? That's the question that Jesus is asking you and I. When we say we believe, it means that we frame our existence by His existence. That's what it means to have a Christian worldview, to live in His story, to say that He has a better story than any story I can come up with. And I can stand and cheer on the sidelines or I can get, live the adventure that He wants to call me towards. So how do you and I view the world? The second question I would ask this morning is, does your story work? Is the story you're living in working? And I don't care whether you call yourself a Christian or not, because we could call ourselves a Christian and clap on the side. But I'm saying, are we living the Christian worldview? And if not, is the one that we're running after, is it working for us? I, uh, I'm not a Dr. Phil fan. Okay, Some of you remember Dr. Phil. He had a wonderful drawl. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't always a fan. And, and like many who, who started out well, with TV shows, it kind of became a thing about ratings, and so things get just more crazy, right? But one phrase that he always used, and I always loved it, and it's so true. How's that working for you? How's that working for you? There's destruction all around you. Your relationships are falling apart. They're broken. No one wants to be with you. You're waking up lonely and broken. How's that working for you? Good question. It's a good question. As one anonymous poet puts it, My face in the mirror isn't wrinkled or drawn. My house isn't dirty, the cobwebs are gone. My garden looks lovely and so does my lawn. I think I might never put my glasses back on. (laughs) That's what I need to do. (laughs) That would make my life so much easier. So maybe like, like Martha this morning, our thought is, yeah, my, my faith will, will have some use someday, but not now. When, when I cash in my chips, then it'll be worth something, but, but, but not now. But we need to be careful or we will find ourselves in a hamster wheel just going and going and going. going. I love my story. I love my story. I love my story. And it's not getting us anywhere. So when it comes to a worldview, when it comes to looking and analyzing a story, there's two important questions that we need to ask. Two important questions that we need to ask of our worldview, of our story. The first, is it rational? Hey, are the wealthier happier? Are the sexually promiscuous happier? Do things like naturalism explain the world well? Do they bring in the idea of sin and and moral issues, thoughts of injustice and love? Do they explain them well? Because this is what we're called to live by. 
1995, there was an article written in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I know because I read it all the time. It was titled, Anthropologists, Cultural Relativism, and Universal Human Rights. Does anyone else need a nap? That's a long title. In this article, a cultural anthropologist named Carolyn Fleur-Laban, that's how I'm going to say her name, found herself at, at a paradox. She was told that as an anthropologist, a naturalist, she had no right to look at the practices of cultures and make any sort of moral judgment claim. Because morals take place... There are our own constructs. They come up in different cultures, and who are we to judge? There's nothing higher for us to judge by. But as she found herself studying in the Sudan and witnessing a certain culture that was practicing the mutilation of women's bodies and, and what they called honor killings of children if they had caused shame in the family, she found that her beliefs when it came to naturalism and about what she saw that can only be described as wrong as evil, that those two could not exist in the same world. If it's only material, then I shouldn't have any sort of moral judgment, she thought to herself. In a closed closed universe, she would be told by her colleagues, you have no right to make a judgment, right or wrong. These are just social constructs. She couldn't ask about human rights in the case of women who were being abused in this way or honor killings and children. It It didn't fit into her worldview. How do we speak about honor killings of youth as morally unacceptable if right and wrong are up to a culture? Right and wrong are up to me. Yet something inside her found that view of the world unlivable. She said, I always felt trapped between my cultural anthropologic understanding and human rights. Why? Because her anthropology and, and the social sciences and the way she was being taught and told that she had to live out her practice did not work with what she was witnessing in the real world. She eventually joined with others in the fight against what was going on to these women and children, and now she's written all sorts of books about ethics and the social sciences and how they have to coexist. You cannot deny that there is something above what we're witnessing if we're gonna, to make any sort of call on anything. And she, she's not a person of faith, but she just, when she's asked and pushed, how do you know this? I just know. It's there. There's something above and beyond. So above, but just beyond culture, above nature, there is something that is saying that some things are right and some things are wrong. According to historical cultural anthropology, what makes everything about you and me is a result of undirected, random, Evolution. Well, what is that? It's the process of survival of the fittest. It's a process of natural selection. In other words, at the very heart of nature is the strong trampling the weak. The strong organisms eating the weak organisms. The strong species trampling the weak species. That's the heart of nature. Yet she knows, and you and I know, that there's something wrong about that. This strong humans should not trample on weak humans. It's not right. Strong nations should not trample on weak nations. It's not right. It's utterly natural, but it's wrong. might come naturally. But there can be no right and wrong in a materialistic world. And she found that that worldview was irrational. Second question we need to ask of our worldview is, is it livable? Is it livable? And by livable, I, I would say, is it healthy? 
Does the story that we're living in, is it bringing life? And I don't just mean, did it feel good on Friday night? (laughs) I mean, is it bringing life to us and to others? Does it promote life or does it lead to death? Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right. Seems right to us. But in the end, it's the way to death. So let's look at everyone's favorite. Two examples. Everyone's favorite, the ethic of sexuality within the bonds of covenantal marriage would be what we believe as Christians. I should say what we believe as Orthodox Christians. That sexuality is made for a marital relationship. Coming from the belief that sexuality is beautiful, it's a beautiful gift to be enjoyed, but like any good thing used, it ought to be used properly because it deals with real people made in the image of of God. And Christians are thought and always have been thought of as repressed because we think that things like pornography are actually dangerous and science and psychology are all catching up to this now, ruining marriages, ruining the very ability to have a sexual encounter psychologically and physically. Sexuality outside the biblical idea of marriage is harmful, harmful. But the worldview of secular humanism, which, by the way, you're going to get hit by a thousand times today on many different levels and in many different ways before your head hits the pillow. You're going to be hit with it by music and TV and conversation. Secular humanism would say, live for today, live for yourself. Don't be bound by the, the shackles of commitment. Those are remnants of some patriarchal age. Just let those things go. Live as unbridled with unbridled pleasure. That's the recipe for joy. As if unbridled pleasure was ever the recipe for a healthy society. We've seen societies throughout history who've gone that route. Well, guys, we don't need to look to the Bible to show the dangers of deciding that's not important, of deciding to go that route when we refuse what the Bible says. Just about that. I'm just picking a topic. When sexuality is not placed within the biblical mandate of of marriage, we see orphans and single moms and single dads, abuse, abortion, addiction, depression, anxiety. Nancy Piercy, who has done a lot of study in this area, she says one wonders if we would even need social services if sexuality were kept and nurtured within marital covenant. It spreads far. That kind of view of freedom, it doesn't produce life. Like it promises it does, it destroys life. Yet it's one of the most highly promoted views of what it means to be truly alive. It's a lie, it's not healthy. It doesn't deliver what it's promised. Look at the research that's been done recently in college campuses of men and women who are, who are feeling lost and like something has been stolen from them because they've decided that they're going to follow this ethic. But a worldview that says it's simply biological, it's, it's just a matter, uh, it's just matter, so it doesn't matter, simply not true, and we've seen the results. That's just one thing. What about the, pro- the promise of being fulfilled by stuff? That's a huge one. Being fulfilled by stuff. One of the most prevalent ways of viewing meaning in our existence is that of accumulation. 
So more sex, but more money, more experience, more tech, more Amazon Prime. And if we aren't happy with what we're getting, we don't change our pursuit. We just pursue it more. We don't don't have the logic to figure out, oh, it's not finding me joy. Maybe if I do it more, that will bring me joy. The fulfillment of more stuff. Arcade Fire wrote a great song last year, two years ago. Called Everything Now. Some of you have probably heard it. It starts off, it sounds like it's going to be a song by ABBA, but it's not. Arcade Fire. This is how this song goes. It says, every inch of sky has got a star. Every inch of skin has got a scar. I guess that we've got everything now. Every inch of space in your head is filled with the things that you, that you read. I guess you've got everything now. And every film that you've ever seen fills the space up in your dreams. That reminds me of everything now. Every inch of road's got a sign and every boy uses the same line. I pledge allegiance to everything now. Every song that I've ever heard is playing at the same time. It's absurd. And it reminds me, we've got everything now. Then he says, we turn the speakers up till they break. Because every time you smile, it's a fake. Stop pretending you've got everything now. Stop crying out, I need everything now. I've got everything now. What are they saying? They're saying that the, the naturalistic worldview is not working. Our minds are, are getting filled up. We have everything. Yeah, okay, we have everything that came with a, a promise of a modern world and then the, the postmodern world where we're told that we ought to feel free, our films, our music. We, we just turn it up loud so it drowns out our souls crying out. This isn't working. As we do, you know, our car's making noise now. I just turn the radio up. <laughs> Something's wrong back here somewhere, but I'm just going to keep that. I think it sounds better. I'll get it in this week, honey, I promise We do that in our lives, don't we? Just keep busy, accumulate. And somewhere in the back, our soul's going, no, guys, there's there's something. We've got to talk about this. We're like, no, just more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Pretending we have everything now, everything now, but it's not doing the trick. It's a facade because the worldview does not account for as much as it promises to account for. It doesn't deal with our shame. It doesn't, it doesn't deal with our longing for eternity, our, our desire to belong to a better story. I'm the resurrection and the life, Jesus says. That, that's a story. That's a story to get involved in. I'm the one through whom the world makes sense, that it receives meaning, through whom you find your greatest identity, purpose, fullest humanity. I love the way Jesus says this in the message. In Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. He says, and you're, you're familiar with this, are you, are you burdened and heavy laden? It says this in the message. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away, from, get away with me. Get away from the everything now, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it and, and learn from the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. He knows what is right for us. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Don't we want to live freely and lightly? Aren't we tired? Aren't we tired from everything now? Everything now, but it isn't bringing us satisfaction. It isn't scratching our itch, as we say. And then we have this underlying guilt We have this underlying anxiety because we have been 
promise that having everything should make us happy, but it isn't giving us what the car commercial said it was going to give us. My hair's not blowing slowly in the wind. I don't have a perfect suit. I don't have that. My road's still just leading me to the office every Monday. It's going to the same place. And so we live in the richest of societies with the most cases of anxiety and depression and lostness. We got everything. Confused because the worldview that offers so much is delivering so little. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew frames, frames Jesus walking into the human existence by quoting Isaiah. In Matthew 4, 16, it says, The people dwelling in darkness, the people living in their own story, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. The invitation of the gospel is that God, through the story of Jesus, the resurrection and, and the life, overlapping and, and reshaping and reorienting and recreating our stories. That's, that's the invitation. We love a good story. We love a good story. So the question for us this morning is, do, do we need to trade in our story for a better story? Do we need, I, I'm not talking about, uh, we can all stand on the side and clap. I get that. I, I do that in so many ways throughout the week and daily where I need to say, okay, I'm in, I'm on, I believe. I'm investing. I'm taking some real decisions that, that cause me to rely on you, Jesus. I get that. So I'm not talking about whether you claim to be a Christian or not. I'm saying what worldview, what story have you been living in? Because that can be very different. I'm not sure if you know this, but information doesn't improve us. Just throwing information at a problem does not improve us. I shared this with some people yesterday. I, I just finished reading a book a few weeks ago called How to Be Sanctified. You can talk to any of my family members. Information wasn't the trick. It didn't, all of a sudden, it wasn't, hey, what happened to you? I read a book. Wow, you're sanctified. That's not what changes us. People need to be convinced of a better story. We need to hear a better story. I would think it, it, it's fair to say that, that in our family, recently at least, that I, if, if there's a cake that's going to be baked or cookies made, I'm, I'm the guy doing it. I'm, I'm the baker in our house, mostly just because, oh, I'm getting a look from the back. I'm not the baker in the house. I've baked once and... I like to bake. I like to bake. I've noticed a difference when, because it's so easy now, because if I want to bake something I've never baked before, I can go online, I can look it up, put in my Evernote. It used to be, five years ago, that I could look up a recipe for apple cinnamon coffee cake. It's really good, by the way. Can I get a head nod on that one? Thank you, honey. And I look up a recipe, and hey, I'd get a recipe. Have you tried to look up a recipe lately? You have to listen to some hipster's story about how he had to search for the perfect, perfect dessert for his friends who were coming over. Who he wants. It's like, okay, all right. I'm sorry life is so hard. Just show me how to bake the cake. Why? Because people want a story. Tell me how this fact fits into my story or I'm not interested. It's true. I want to be a part of a, a beautiful life, a beautiful story. That's, that's the invitation of the Christian worldview. That's the invitation of the gospel, that you and I have been invited into a beautiful story by the creator and sustainer 
of life. A story by which we frame our days, we frame our experiences, our our morality, where we decide what is beautiful, what it means to be truly free and truly human, and therefore into which story we will invest our minutes and our days and our years and our lives. Alistair McIntyre says this, he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part so what story do you find yourself a part of this morning? Is, is it a better story? Is it a greater story? There's a, a few things we'll notice. I think my next thing says two things we will notice. So what it says? Yeah, I'm going to give you three. What's he doing? A few things you'll notice that you, if you say we believe the Christian story, Three things that can happen to us if we say we believe the Christian story. First is, we will be at odds with the subplots of our day. There's no way around it. If we say that we are going to live in the story that Jesus has invited us into, we will be at odds with the subplots. We'll find that we are consistently at odds with the hot topics of the day. Abortion, euthanasia, pornography, other ideas on sexuality and accumulating stuff because we are looking at all these, these topics through a diametrically different story. Through a far-reaching and much deeper-reaching story of how the world works, one that says there is identity and purpose and personhood placed on all of us that is not arbitrary, but it's ordained by God. So we'll find ourselves at odds with the stories going on around us. The other thing is that we will be at odds with ourselves if we try to live both stories at once. And we want to do that. We want to live both stories at once. But we'll find something inside us, this this inconsistency with our Christian worldview, this Christian story. We'll continue to feel tension in our lives. We'll feel hypocritical and and wonder why the Christian life doesn't work. Why isn't it working? Well, because you're trying to live two stories at once. And they don't work together. But thirdly, sorry it's not up there, we'll be able to live in in hope even when the storylines around us are seemingly hopeless. So that we don't have to be the guy in a Manhattan Tower in 2008 and saying, I have no reason to live anymore. And there were Christians jumping off buildings in Manhattan in 2008 who were standing on the sideline, clapping, going, this is a great story. But when it came to it, they were not interested in jumping on and trusting Jesus for a greater story. So the question for you and I and I is do we need to trade in our story? Is our belief, is our story, is our belief more than just a cognitive agreement? Is it, is it a living story that has meat on the bones? It, it, it makes it into our daily story? If, if we label ourselves Christ followers, and we say we believe, does it mean that we frame our existence by his existence? Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and I'm standing before you. Yes, the resurrection of all, that'll happen, but I'm here right now. Will you frame your existence around my existence? So this week, I'm going to give you some homework. And throughout this series, this idea of being transformed, I'm going to give you homework each week, some tools. 
And, and it's something you can even think on now, but most of this will be done throughout the week, throughout today even. As you engage with others, as you engage with, with Netflix, secular humanism, this everything now mentality, the, the often devaluing stories of the world, I want to invite you to hold them up to the gospel story. I want you to hold them up to the story that, that Jesus wants to invite you to, the Christian worldview, what it says about you, what it says about the world, and see which offers more hope. Which is a better story? And revisit this invitation of Jesus, the resurrection and the life, the one who holds all things together by his word, who values you at the cost of his life. Do you believe this? Will you frame your life by my life, Jesus says. If so, Jesus would say, live in my story. Frame your story within my story.